FM Breakfast Show with the Double L Team, Lyle and Lawson. Welcome everybody, you're listening on 87.6, or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network. It is the Breakfast Show. Lawson, what are you thankful for this morning? I have friends, Lyle. Really? I know that people don't want to believe it. This I know is, that they, this is the first. They, they bully me on Faith FM and tell me I don't <laughs> have friends, but I have friends, Lyle. I have friends that have come up from Victoria, from Melbourne, so they're doing very well for themselves. They're, yes. You know, getting out of that seeing, place. Seeing, seeing the sun. <laughs> seeing the sun. <laughs> That's right, for the first time. Uh, my friends come up. Shout out Chris and Annabelle. And uh, Chris, he's a pastor from down in Melbourne, and I'm taking him out motorbike riding today, which is so fun. Lawson. Uh-huh. You realise you have never. Do you want to come? You have never you taken. Come? You have never taken me motorbike riding. Uh, that's because we just see each other too much. <laughs> <laughs> you have never taken me mo. See, see, this is what happens. Someone comes from Melbourne. Oh, I'll take him motorbike riding. <laughs> but my poor best, old, my best mate that I old yeah, Lyle, you know, work with every at single day with his never wife even and such an invite. Kids and living his perfect life is so torn up inside because he can't come over to my place and ride motorbikes. Yes. Yeah. Well, Do you have a spare motorbike for me if I come over? Well, there's two motorbikes and three of us. We can. Nah, that's lame. Come on, that's lame. <laughs> we can take turns. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's really, really exciting. Oh, and also, I just got a call randomly yesterday, and someone was like, "Hey, can you speak at our church on Saturday afternoon?" And I was like, "Yeah, for sure." Nice. Where's that? So I'm going to be at the Hamilton Seventh Day Adventist Church. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We're about to get into positively different news. Before we do, as always, we have the first question for our quiz. You have five opportunities today to get your name in the draw. It's your last opportunity today. That's right. But there are five of them. There are five last opportunities. So the first clue for the quiz is, I am the brother of Rebecca. 0491-064-669. If you know who that is, you will go into the draw to win the prize for today. You just have to text in or call in the correct answer and your name will be put in the draw. Maybe again, maybe you've answered questions this week correctly already, but you can go in again to win No Hal Hitler and A Thousand Shall Fall. Amazing stories of people standing up for their faith in World War II. If you would love these books, and trust me, you will love these books because they're amazing. 0491-064-669. Again, that question was, I am the brother of Rebecca. Oh. I almost said this person's name. That was close. That was a close one. I gave a clue away yesterday. Yes. I almost nearly did it again I was like, I'm the brother of Rebecca. And then for some reason, my brain just went and, and then I was just going to say their name. But luckily, luckily I didn't. didn't. 0491-064-669, guys. Come on, get in. Get in. I mean, we've been studying the book of Genesis. You should know this one. Yeah, 100%. That's that's why. All right, let's let's move on. Let's talk about some positive news before we... uh, Okay, I have some I have some historical news. Okay. I have some historical I, actually I like historical actually news. these two books that we're giving away from World War Two right. have to do with Nazis uh-huh. and Germany. Yes. And I have a story that has to do with the same. Okay. All right. Lyle, imagine. You just it's nineteen thirty eight. Thirty eight, yes. You're, you're living in New Jersey. Okay. You're, Second World War is happening. That's right, the Second World War is happening. You are in, a Russian Japanese are in, Japanese are in China. That's right. 
That's right. Pearl Harbor hasn't happened yet, but, you know. Adolf Hitler is saber rattling, getting ready to go. That's right. And you're, you know, chilling in your house. You, like, just just a dude who makes shoes. Yes. You get paid $120 a month. Decent. You're a Russian-American Jew. Okay. And you just you just do anything. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, late at night, you get a knock on the door. Mm. And you open the door and someone there appeals to you that there's a family in Germany that needs help escaping. And what they want from you is money. How would you feel? Uh, scam. S- scam? Okay. Um, Instantly it'd be like scam. Um, and the problem is that we live in a world today where these kind of scams happen all the time. You know, you get a big disaster taking place somewhere like bushfires or floods and people come knocking on your door asking for money. A lot of the time they're just scam. They're scamming. Imagine if this person wasn't just asking for, you know, a financial contribution, but for you to sign an affidavit that would allow them to use your funds from your bank account to support this family you know, in cases where they just simply just don't have money or when they're struggling. So you're not just signing up for a one-time donation, but ongoing financial support. Okay, so today's day and age, it wouldn't be so hard to manage that because Mm -hmm. you would only give them one of your bank accounts. Mm -hmm. But in those days, that's a massive leap of faith. Yeah, it's huge. You don't know these people, you've never heard of them. You've never never heard of them, you've never met them. They're, They're Germans. Sure. You're an American. They're German Jews. They're German Jews. You're a Russian Jewish American. You're a Russian... Jewish American, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and this is this is and now from that point forward, you have to reveal your banking information, your net worth, your monthly income. You know, let this person into your life. Look at your passports, everything. Full privacy. Go fully into your life to enable this random family from Germany that you've. Firstly, you don't know, and secondly, you will never meet. You you don't even know the, whether these people exist or not. Nope. This is a wild story. Well, this was the leap of faith that a guy, his name is Barnett Uden. He is a Russian-American Jew yep. from New Jersey. He made this leap of faith. Yep. He was like, this is convincing. I'm going to follow this up. Yes. He supported a family named the Panzias. They are some Jews from Germany. In 1938, the kind of... Nationalism in oh yeah, the, in but Germany the persecution is, against Jews is is in is, full swing. It's in full swing. They haven't yet started killing them, or uh, they've started killing, them, but not having a policy of extermination yet. But the writing is on the wall. That's right. You know, they're being identified out in the street. They have to wear armbands. Like at this time, heavy persecution is coming upon the Jewish population in Germany. And you've just signed up to help a group of them get over, the Panzers. You don't know these people, but they're, they're coming over. Now, the Panzers eventually made it to the United States. Praise the Lord. Like, they escaped Amen. the persecution, they escaped the concentration camps, and they escaped death, extermination, which was the fate of many Jewish people who stayed in those areas, whether it was Germany or Poland or, you know, all around Europe. They escaped. They got out. They, but they never met. Like, they never met these people. Uh, the Panzers rock up in America, and one of the, the people who was a part of this family, David Panzer, goes on to become a Nobel Prize-winning physicist and, nice. you know, does well for himself. Yes. Then 89, like, well, a very long time... Germany could have had that award, but America got it instead. And that's right. That's yep. right. They, they, they did it for the States. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, a long time later, nearly, you know, 
a fair few generations later in the in the 2000s the 2010s um you know you are a family member of the panzeers and you're going through oh man it's like we have all these old documents and stuff from back in the day and you go through and you open up a letter that has an affidavit in it from a person whose last name is Uden Bernard Uden and you realize like wow this is the person who supported my family entirely to get them over here. The reason I, as the grandson of David, uh, David Panzeus am here is because of this guy's random act of kindness. When someone just walked up to him on the street or knocked on his door late at night and asked him for an affidavit for money. And so from there, the two families got together and shared documents and shared stories. So why did this never happen beforehand? Because, like I said, the people didn't like these. The Panzeers didn't fly into New Jersey. They didn't land on New Jersey. Like they, they established themselves in California. This was just right. And yep. the, and mm-hmm. this affidavit is going through a middleman who was trying to support this family. Yes. And so they've just never thought like it was just like oh we got money sweet like we got money we can get to the states awesome. But that was the thought at the time. But then again, they are rummaging through old documents. They it's not like you can jump on David. Facebook and find the person sending the message. That, that's right. We're talking about when this took place, the 1930s. And by the time they got to the United States, took in 1941. Yes. But yeah, after years and years and years and years, the families connected up and you know, kind of brought historical documents on both sides and were sharing photos and sharing stories. And I just think this is a really, really amazing story of, again, like, in, in any other case, it would be like, oh, this is a scam. This is gnarly. But I really feel like something must have been working in this guy's heart, this guy, um, Bernard Uden, to just say, you know what? Like, I really believe that there are people in need of help and I'm going to support them. Um, he actually comes from a family where they had uh, dreams of him becoming a doctor. You know, they were from a pretty, not not hugely, but a relatively affluent family, Jewish family but instead he becomes a shoe salesman earning 120 bucks a month he's just a dude yeah he's just a dude yep and he gives his money and, and, and this is time. and this is this is how a lot of immigrants start they start with whatever kind of work they can get mm. and they do a good job at that and then of course they either progress or their children progress or their grandchildren progress and do mm. wonderful things but yeah i think it's amazing well for both of these families to yes. both progress they both live here they have lived long and happy lives and whatnot but yeah all because of one dude who's just a shoe salesman from new jersey just like yeah i'll just give these random so it doesn't matter how simple you think your op- occupation might be you can change people's lives that's right. dramatically that's right and that's exactly what bernard Uden has done which yes. is so amazing. So I just wanted to talk about that story this morning. I think it's a great I story to talk about. I think that we all need to stop and think, okay, what can we do in our world to actually make a real difference to somebody else's life? Because, you know, a lot of us are not wealthy. A lot of us are poor. A lot mm-hmm. of us just, you know, go to work every day and we make <laughs> yep. ends meet and we live from paycheck to paycheck, which, you know, this this guy would have been doing as a shoe mm. salesman on 120 a week. A month. A month, sorry. <laughs> which is, you know, that's a paycheck to paycheck. It's, it's, it's not poverty mm. in 1938, but it's a paycheck to paycheck situation of course he would have been using cash in those mm-hmm. days mm. and so and of course we don't use paychecks these days either um, i'm sure you've never seen one of those lawson but i have i have never ever used a check in my life i've never owned a check account oh i have got like a big novelty check from when i like won a motorbike race when i was like 14 did you take it into the bank 
<laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted you to get one of those big numbers. Rock up the bank, unroll the thing on the desk and say, I want to cash this one. <laughs> Give me my money. <laughs> what can awesome. you do for somebody else today? Let's have a think about it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. And right now, we're, yeah, get, we, right now we are getting into the second clue for the quiz, guys. This is your last opportunity to get your name in to win the books. No Harl Hedler and A Thousand Shall Fall. Amazing, awesome testimonies of people standing up for their faith during World War II against the Nazi regime. As we were just kind of discussing World War II and the Nazi regime. But right now, let's have our second clue for the quiz. In one of Jesus' parables, he compares a lost sinner to what other lost thing? 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text if you know the answer. If you do, again, you can win those amazing books and they are fantastic. But again, that uh, number is 0491-064-669. And that question is, in one of Jesus' parables, he compares a lost sinner to what other lost thing? Okay, so moving to more serious news and staying on the same thing, the same theme of World War II, mm. uh, Nazi Germany, uh, Jewish persecution and so forth, Germany's top court ruled on Tuesday that an anti-Semitic medieval sculpture can stay on a church. And can this stay. Partic- okay. It can stay there. So this particular sculpture is called the Judensau. And so, of course, pigs are considered to be abhorrent and unclean amongst Jewish culture. And, of course, as you and I, we don't eat dead pigs either because mm-hmm. the Bible says don't eat dead pigs. Because they're gross. Yes, exactly. The particular Judensau sculpture is the depiction of a rabbi lifting the tail of a pig and two Jewish children suckling on the teats of the pig. So it's really, really... I'm, I'm looking at the photo right now. abhorrent and that's so racist. Gross. Yeah, that's so gross. I've actually seen I've been there and seen it. I've taken oh, a photo of myself. That's gross. So this is on a church in uh, Wittenberg in Germany, and it's one of about 24 or so similar sculptures around Europe. This was at a period where there was a lot of racism against Jewish people. And what it does is it gives you a little bit of a snapshot, a little bit of an insight into some of the history that led up to what happened to the Jewish people during the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. There was a, if, you, if you read what Martin Luther said about Jewish people, he absolutely despised Jewish people. And this particular sculpture is on a church where he was the, in, in the town in which he was the head of the university there in Wittenberg mm. as the start of the Protestant Reformation. And so the Protestant Reformation really should have done away with racism, but mm. unfortunately it did not, and it continued that racism, and you find that racism coming down through in Christianity. Of course, you come down to the Second World War, and you talk about Nazi Germany. Most of those people were Christians. Mm. Most of those people who were fighting for Adolf Hitler had a Christian background. Mm. These were not atheists. And, of course, a lot of them, you know, the Lutheranism was the largest church in Germany uh, at that particular time. And so we often think, oh, you know, they were just a whole bunch of secular atheists. No, this is not the case. Mm. And so this is a major embarrassment for, well, Germany and uh, Christianity. However, what do you do with this particular sculpture? Mm. What is the best thing to do with it? So there's been, you know, Jewish people who have been campaigning to have it taken down, to have it removed. And Germany has steadfastly said, no, it stays. Okay. Why do they do that? And I think Germany has actually made the right decision here because there are a lot of sculptures around the world that over time 
we learned that these are sculpt- these sculptures are incredibly offensive mm. for a whole slew mm-hmm. of different reasons because there's a whole bunch of history involved in that sculpture that maybe hasn't been taught or when that sculpture was made, a really horrible thing was being promoted. Mm. Do we take the sculpture down? And I say, this is my opinion, no. We never take these sculptures down. We use them as educational Mm. pieces so that we can avoid the mistakes of the past. You don't eradicate history. You teach history because if you eradicate history, you are are, uh, destined to repeat it, and that's the last thing in the world we want to do. And so many, many years ago, uh, of course, Germany placed a plaque underneath this particular sculpture explaining the history behind it, explaining the horrors of the Holocaust, Mm. explaining the horrors of racism, and uh, detailing how this was just a really, really terrible thing that should always be remembered as a terrible thing. This is the correct way to deal with offensive sculptures. We need to learn from them, not eradicate them. Mm. All right, let's continue on, and let's talk about gambling. So in the UK, we're going to start in the UK, and then we're going to move to Australia. So the UK is set to water down gambling laws. Uh, So if you're watching, say, a Premier League football match, Mm-hmm. You will see a gambling logo at least 700 times during one match. Oh, yeah, 100%. That's an average, yeah. So that's the average of 700 times you're going to see the logo of a gambling company. And that's, that's massive advertising. And gambling companies can afford to pay for the harm that they are causing to society, and so they need to do so. Mm. Government needs to enforce that. Uh, this was a statement from a Christian social policy charity called Care. The CEO Ross Hendy is like they can afford to pay for it, so they need to do so. And of course, we've seen that with you know other addictive practices that have a high cost on society. Smokers these days, with their with the tax that they pay on cigarettes, basically they are paying for their medical care and their own death ahead of time by buying cigarettes. Mm. And that's how it should be. I think you just ban cigarettes altogether and gambling, of course, as well. But that's probably not going to happen in the near future. Mm. But the biggest problem with gambling companies is while they can afford to pay for the harm, it's cheaper to pay for the politicians. Mm. And we see that happening over and over and over again. Uh, In the UK, there are around about half a million addicts and about 55,000 of those addicts are children. And what gambling, and this, yeah. is, this is how gambling companies operate. We need to understand how they operate. Okay, they typically target the most deprived areas as they are the ones who are twice as likely to participate in online gambling. Mm. So you, you're poverty-stricken areas. Uh, they are the ones who are going to suffer the heaviest losses. So, you know, your high rollers and that kind of stuff, yeah, they're not going to die tomorrow as a result of losing a huge amount of their fortune. Mm. And they are probably smart enough to become a high roller so that they can actually manage their addiction Mm. in a way that they don't destroy their lives. But at the other end of the scale, you have those people who are in absolute poverty who can't afford to do do so. Uh, The top 10% of active accounts result in 79% of the industry's income. This is uh, with online gambling, which is being... You know, particularly target these low income areas. You know, it's, it's a little like bookies and bingo halls. They target, you know, they're, they're a little bit like Maccas. You know, they go to the places where mm. there is very low income and people are going to be, you know, drawn into it. You have multi millionaire sports people 
losing money like footballers, there's a whole bunch of footballers who have who are living in abject poverty because of their gambling addictions. Think about that. Mm. I mean, think about how much these guys are getting paid. And vulnerable gamblers who are not getting the help they need, who are at the mercy of a predatory system which is driven by greed and puts profits before people. And so I have zero sympathy for any gambling company whatsoever at all. These people are trading in misery. They mm. are living off the misery of others, and they need to be shut down. Here in Australia, Tim Costello has been talking about this. He says, to understand the operation and regulation of gambling in Australia requires you to suspend all logic. Mm. There's nothing else like it. So, for instance, Queensland resisted a plethora of calls to hold an inquiry in the Star Casino. Yeah. This is after Victoria and New South Wales did and revealed just massive lists of fraud, money laundering, organised crime, so much criminal behaviour in New South Wales. And they're like, Queensland, like, oh, it's not happening up here in Queensland. <laughs> they even Queensland even went as far as creating legislation you know, $50 million for integrity breaches, so mm. they could avoid an inquiry. Mm. It's Yikes. just absolutely bizarre. And so then they've come up with a solution. Okay, what is the solution uh, down here in New South Wales and Victoria? Well, you hand Crown Casino to Blackstone. This is a, a foreign equity company. Mm. So it's foreign-owned. It's unaccountable. It's private company. It does has no AGMs, so there is no opportunity for any any scrutiny uh, by the shareholders whatsoever at all. Mm. So you you jump, you go from from bad to worse. As, as as Tim points out, you've got to suspend all logic when it comes to gambling. And then you've got the Barangaroo property in Sydney, of course, which has collapsed because you know COVID. The Chinese high, high rollers are not coming in anymore. And so, what mm. are they going to do? They're going to fill it with pokies so that they can prey on poor Aussies. Mm. Crown was in Victoria was fined $80 million because of an illegal transfer money system that it was using from China, which violated uh, Victorian law and Chinese law. Star has the same system but hasn't been fined yet. Until last year, the maximum fine, the maximum fine allowable was just $1 million. Mm. And in New South Wales, they are refusing to raise the limit from one million. So they're making they made thirty two million out of it last year. This illegal system. Oh yeah, and then so if you look at at profit expense or return on investment, it's much cheaper to pay the one million dollar fine <laughs> because you're making a, a massive profit out yeah, of it. That's you know, right. it's a very simple equation, and they are playing the system. They are trading in misery. They are destroying Australians. They are destroying the world. They just simply need to be shut down, just shut mm. the whole thing down. Someone in government needs to have the courage to stand up and deal with our gambling problem in Australia because it is destroying people's lives. We need to start caring about people here in this country. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We're about to get out to our interview of the day, which today is going to be a journey of faith interview. I'm super looking forward to it. But before mm. we do, we have another question for our quiz. What does King Belshazzar see happen that singles that signals the end of his rule? 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text if you know the answer. And if you do, you will go into the draw to win No Hal Hitler and a thousand shall fall. Amazing books, amazing testimonies of people who stood up for their faith and yet led others to Christ as well during World War II under the Nazi regime. So again, that number is 0491-064-669 and that question is 
What does King Belshazzar see happen that signals the end of his rule? Okay, so joining us on the phone this morning is Roger the Dodger. And, of course, I met Roger the Dodger, otherwise known as Roger Kerr, back in, I think, 1995. So I've known this guy for a long time. Recently wrote his autobiography. And uh, Roger is an accountant. There are not many accountants who have written an autobiography, but there are also not many accountants who have lived as an adventurous a life as Roger the Dodger. Roger, welcome to the show. Thanks, Laura. Good to be on. Fantastic. I'm not an accountant. I started as an accountant, but anyway. Yeah, okay, all right. But that, that makes the story more interesting when we say, we're going to talk to an accountant and everything's, oh, that sounds boring. Uh, but it's not well, I didn't, I didn't want to die of boredom. That's why I left the country, but anyway. <laughs> okay, so for all of our accountants out there, we've just uh, we've offended you all, but that's okay. Roger, uh, let's, t- let's talk a little bit about your background, uh, where you come from. You're originally a Sydneyite, I understand? Yes, yes, we family home in Longerville. That's the Lower North Shore. It's a beautiful, beautiful suburb. And yeah, I had a very stable upbringing. I had a, a beautiful, well, a lovely mother, and uh, we had one home, and uh, they were together. It's unusual these days, but uh, one home all, up until all my life in the up till twenty anyway. Fantastic, but, fantastic. Uh, hey, and uh, your parents, Christian parents. No, I raised up an atheist home, but uh, I, my mum, who was really highly intelligent, the uh, knowledge that, uh, well, she could be better than Google today. I, we just went to mum and she answered all my questions. And I said, she said uh, about Christians that they're sort of a bit ignorant or brain dead. And so I accepted that she was telling the truth. And, uh, yeah, so that's how it was. And, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. That's how, that's how it is when you're a kid. What your parents say is, is what you believe. Now, yeah. at some particular point, I'm going to move through this story fairly quickly because obviously you've got a whole book, which is um, definitely worth reading. I'd encourage everybody to uh, grab a, a, a copy of it, and we're going to talk about that towards the end of this interview. But uh, you get into you, – you obviously learn accounting, but then at some point you begin to travel the world uh, yeah, to well, escape accounting. How did that happen? <laughs> no, look, I – I just was working this council office in the Circular Quay, and in those days all the ships came in, and I just had the, the travel bug, you know. And so I, I left Australia when I was about 22, went to New Zealand in a, in a boat, a ship, and, uh, you know, worked at a ski resort, stayed there about six months. And, um, yeah, I just I, I got into working in hotels, obviously go skiing, I Worked in ski resorts in New Zealand, then I went to Canada, worked in ski resort there. So obviously that's not doing accountancy. But uh, so basically, as far as work-wise, I got into sales and marketing and run it, later on running my own businesses. But, you know, I just – what I found out, Lyle, was that people – that I met were, were crooks and con men, and uh, I don't know why that I I had a you know but by beholding it become changed, and I started to think, well, you can get away with blue murder, and I can tell you about a guy I worked for in London if you have time. But uh, sure, oh, let's, let's talk about this guy because he was kind of well, famous in his day. It, well, anyway, so what happened was I was at doing accountancy then, and. They sent the agency sent me to this uh, fellow, and it was a fashion boutique fashion for young ladies. And uh, they told me the books were in a mess. Well, when I got there, man, that was an understatement. The books were in a shocking state. And I met the owner, Peter, 
And he had one. I found out he had many aliases, but you know, Peter will do. And uh, so what happened was he was charming, good-looking, tall, had a Jaguar sports car. Uh, you know, I'm a young guy, early 20s. I was very impressed with this fellow. And he talked beautifully, like Shakespearean accent. He could have been an actor, you know. And he, he, yeah, just I had warmed to this man very much in the first week, and I thought, well, what a nice guy, but terrible businessman. Anyway, then on Sunday, that was after the first week, Sunday, I got a paper I norm- normally didn't get called the Sunday People, and it was a bit of a tabloid rag, and I opened it to page three, and there is this whole page on this man. Don't invest your money with Peter, what's it, Fenton? Um, yeah, England's number one con man. And then it went on to how he operated. He had aliases, about six of them. And he would set up a company and make it look very prosperous. And then he would invite people to uh, do a franchise investment. And uh, he conned people terribly. And that's how... So anyway, the next day at work after the paper, see, Monday comes, second week I'm there. And, of course, there was a lot of people outside. I knew there would be. This is very exciting for a young man. And uh, people had the paper in their hands, you see, and they wanted their money back, obviously. And what happened that day, I'll never forget. He would have them ushered in by his secretary one at a time. Then they'd go out the back door and all of them left their money and some even invested, quote, unquote, more money with him. And I thought how easy it is to deceive people. And so that's that's what I found out life. Everywhere I went, I just happened to be a attracted or end up with deceivers and uh, that, that was my journey there but uh, that was part of it you know now now uh, Roger you did a fair bit of traveling as a as a young man yeah. how many different countries did you go to and some of those are fairly random countries very strange I had about well I'm on my eighth passport now and I traveled overseas for about 16 years mainly I lived I based myself in North America especially Canada England, but I had really exotic travels to Cuba and Morocco and India six times I've been there. And uh, so I went, the amazing trip I had was England to India in a little minivan with my girlfriend. And uh, that's not a big car, if you know, a minivan. And uh, we went through places like Turkey, of course, and Afghanistan, Iran. And in those days, like it was just, you could do it, you couldn't do it today. But I had troubles in these countries. But, uh, I mean, I, mean, I nearly got killed in Afghanistan. I, I'm walking down the main road where I met an Irish fellow. We're walking down the main street, and the people started to get very hostile, and kids with little tricycle things, they cut me off and glared. And I thought, what's the matter with these people? Anyway, a gentleman saved my life. He came up and said, boys, you are, you are heading to the mosque. They'll kill you. They're crazy. They'll decapitate you turn around and I said oh, okay so we turned around and yeah these things happened even back then but uh, you know I've been really blessed to go to travel in places that when you can't do it you couldn't safely do that trip now overland to, from Europe to England, England yeah, uh, India just get in yeah. a Morris Minion drive no that's yeah. <laughs> wouldn't exactly happen these days and no. what was the driving what was the driving force behind all of this travel were you was there do you, were you aware of a god-shaped hole so to speak in your heart that you were somehow trying to fill were you looking for spirituality well, uh, was it just adventure did you have any spiritual experiences while you were traveling 
Well, it certainly did, and I was looking for meaning in life. And as you get older, I was getting older, I'm a little bit wiser, and I thought, well, uh, is there a God or not? And I'd met Christians, and I normally didn't like Christians, but I, I remember I did meet a couple that I liked when I was young. But what happened was a very great experience I had in Canada on my second trip, I think it was. And I'm working in a ski resort. I've worked in New Zealand for a few the months of winter then, straight to North America, and you can ski again in a different time of year. And I'm working in a place called Sunshine Village. It's a ski resort near Banff and uh, Lake Louise in uh, Alberta. And it, I just had this experience. It was the, the, coming to the end of the season. I had the last day skiing, so I went, skied up to, I went to the chairlift up to the top, and this time I thought, well, I won't ski there. No, I'm going to go to the top on my skis. I'll traverse up to the top. And I got up there, and it was a beautiful day, as it is in front of me now. Blue sky, uh, it's coming to the end of winter. There's no sound at all, no chairlift, no people. And uh, I just looked, and I what a beautiful, beautiful thing this was. I wish I could have a picture to show you. But it was, yeah, as I said, the, the snow was starting to melt from the trees. And I just gazed there and I had this incredible experience or feeling that that I'm loved by some power or force and I'm wondering, is this God? And honestly, I just felt so moved. Tears came to my eyes. I just I just felt a love I'd never had before and I could have been there for hours. I had no idea and reluctantly I had to go down and get ready to leave but I never forgot that experience and uh, I thought, I, there's got to be a God. I thought that all my atheists, I just, I didn't believe in atheists. I thought there has to be a God. Trouble is I didn't know how to find it. I wish someone had come up and showed me, hey, this is, read this or study this. But anyway, that was the start of it. And you know, later on, it took many years, but then I, conversion came. You know? Yeah, let's talk about that very quickly because you were back in Sydney when you found Jesus Christ yourself. I was indeed, and uh, I was uh, living with my girlfriend in a place called Thornley, I think it was, which is close to Wurunga. And we got, uh, she got, came to me and said, oh, do you want to go to the Carter Report? And it's a brochure I've got from in the letterbox. And I said, what on earth is the Carter Report? And she said, oh, well, he's, uh, have a look. He's, run, he's running a, a program about uh, the pyramids, about uh, Bible prophecy and uh, and I said, where's, anyway, I read it and it said from Adventist uh, Wurunga Church, SBA Church. And I thought, oh, well, they're not too bad. I didn't mind, I didn't like Christians very much, but I didn't mind Adventists because I used to travel around Sydney a lot and there used to be uh, their sanitarium food shops and I used to go there regularly to different places all over Sydney and they had nice, I was vegetarian, you see, I was very interested in health, very interested all my life. And uh, I thought, oh, this is good. And they had little tracks there, and I, I took them home and read them with interest. So I had no prejudice against the, the Seventh-day Adventists. So I, I said, oh. and then I found out it's close to us, it's, um, and it's free. And I said, okay, let's go. So I went along there, and I, I was really quite impressed. You know, we had a group, whole group there. And they um, they gave us Bibles to tell us, because I had no clue. If you asked me to look up Matthew, I wouldn't know where to, where to find it. But they told, told us the page numbers. So about two meetings, it was very interesting. I'm learning things. and But the third meeting was what really, really hit me. He talked about the second coming of, of Jesus. And he had Matthew. We looked in Matthew 24. 
And when it, it quoted, and I read with mine eyes, take heed that no man deceive you. Be on your guard for con men and crooks. Well, I was just really, that's when I just, I was, uh, he had me. I just was, couldn't, I heard every word. I was sitting, listening clear, clearly and intently. And I thought, this describes my whole life. And when it, the Bible was against deception and deceivers, I thought, well, I had no idea. So my eyes were being opened, but that was the catalyst that got me to, 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 to start the journey. And I baptized not long after that. I went almost instantly because God had prepared my heart over all the years with not finding anything in the world of satisfaction, money, I mean, I had Porsches, I had money, I nice, well, good-looking women, but all these things didn't make me any peace of mind. And I read, and you know, there's no peace if you don't have God in your heart. And so that was that was basically what happened to me, you know. Yeah. Okay. Let's yeah. talk about your life. Uh, just you know, post your conversion experience because that is an amazing experience that you've gone through. And uh, since then. You've done a you've you've still done a lot of travel. You've gone to a lot of different places, but with a different motivation. What, well, have, you been, right, what yeah. have you been doing for God since you gave your life to well, Jesus Christ? And what what year was that? Well, how far are we going back when we talk about uh, when you? Had well, uh, well, I, look, I suppose uh, in 1985 I was baptized, and so I was studying to. I worked as a literature evangelist because I used to be in sales and. I, I thought, you know, a brand new Christian, and I thought, oh, I can go to the doors with Christian books, no problem, I can do that. I had to learn that it's it's not like selling an ordinary book, I mean, or selling anything, you know, it's the Holy Spirit of God that will do the work if you want to reach someone. So I had to really pray, Lord, um, you know, pray that someone would be interested. So when I learned that, I did quite well, but... Uh, yeah, so I did that, but I got involved with an uh, operation called Share Him. It's run by the General Conference of SDAs in America, and Share Him means Share Jesus, of course. And they had uh, evangelistic programs we could do all around the world, and they would provide you with the material and the synchronizer so you could uh, learn and present things on the, on the computer uh, screen there with projector. And people would have it in their own language, and I speak English, it would be translated, etc., and they would see it in clearly on the screen in their language. So, so I had three years in India as a crook, atheist, if you like, and then, right, I want to go back to India and do something for the Lord. So we went three trips there to India. We would have gone one more, but the pandemic came, unfortunately. But look, good things come out of bad. Out of the pandemic, I was able to write this book, so that was wonderful. But yeah, when I went to India, it was so wonderful because the, the people were so receptive, and oh, I just I really longed to have one more experience in India. But who knows? But uh, yeah, just that's what we did, you know. Yeah, fantastic. And of course, the Lord has blessed you with an amazing wife, a beautiful daughter, and oh, yeah. just you know, we could we could talk about that all day. Okay, the name of your book. What's your book called? Well, it's called The Life and Death of Roger the Dodger. Can I quickly tell you how that yes. title came? Okay, well, about over a year ago, I met this uh, fellow Richard in my area, and he's a retired barrister and retired magistrate. He's kind of... I think we might have lost Roger there, unfortunately. So that book, uh, just while we're trying to get him back online, uh, The Life Sorry. and Death of Roger the Dodger. Yes, you you back there, Roger? Yeah. He's sort of coming and going and cutting in and out there a little bit, which is uh, a little bit unfortunate. But uh, the life and death of Roger the Dodger. You're going to 
you're going to see this guy has travelled all over the world to some of the most random places. And, of course, you know, this was back in an era, as he said, very different from the era that we live in today through the 60s and so forth. Roger, you there again? Yes, I am, yes. Ah, I got it back again. Okay, the book. How do we get a a copy of this book? Okay, well, you can get it from Better Books in Kurenbong, which I can give you a number if you want. Otherwise, ABC uh, Epping. It was Epping. It's now Minchinbury. Okay, so uh, that's the Adventist Book Centres. So try the Adventist Book Centres or Better Books and Foods in Kurumbong. If you're having trouble with that, just give us a call here on zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. Shoot us a message, give us a call, and we will make sure you can get a copy of uh, The Life and Death of Roger the Dodger. Now, Roger, you're still alive. How come you yes. can write about your death? Well, uh, the Dodger died when I was baptised. The old man of uh, crime before he came to Christ, that was gone and... Uh, so now that he writes a new person, so the Dodger's gone, he's gone, but Roger's still alive, thank mm. the Lord. Praise God, praise God. Encourage everybody to grab a, uh, a copy of Roger's book. Of course, all of the proceeds, understand, are going to uh, ADRA for charity. Is that, uh, is that correct? That's, yeah, that's correct, yes, that is correct. Yeah, fantastic stuff. All right, so Roger's written his autobiography. It is a testimony of what God has done in the life of an atheist. I'd encourage everybody to grab a copy, have a read, and be blessed by Roger's testimony. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.